Living a well-balanced lifestyle goes beyond ensuring your finances are in order. Welcome to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara speaks with wellness industry leaders and related professionals to share more than financial planning advice. She addresses your questions about living a healthy lifestyle at any age. Learn how to gracefully maneuver life's challenges with support and resources to guide you along the way. Barbara and the team at Hightower help you make a plan, make an investment, and make a difference in your own wealth and well-being, and in your families, and within your community. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with your host, Barbara Archer from Hightower. Barbara, it's so good to be back with you. How are you? I am terrific, Eric, and it's so good to be with you. Hope you're doing well today. Fantastic. I know that you have another guest on the show. I'm so excited to hear what you guys are talking about. Well, this may not be directly for you, but I'll bet it touches people in your life because we want to talk about the silent symptoms of menopause. Okay, I'll tell you right now, my wife has been talking to me about this for the last year because she's always cold, always cold. Why can't we got to turn the air conditioner down so it's it's warmer in the house? And then over this last six months, she's like, good Lord, it's hot in here. It's so hot. Why is it so hot for like five minutes? And she's cold again. And she's like, oh, I think these are hot flashes. And so she's almost 50. Don't tell her I said that. But that may be it. We don't know, but that's where she's leaning. So this is for me too. I'm telling you right now. There you go. So pay attention. I will. (laughs) Thank you. So I will ask our audience, are you or a loved one nearing menopause or fully menopausal? Do you know? Just like Eric's wife may not know yet. Have you experienced sleep problems? Do you feel moody? Do you have hot flashes or itchy skin? Or have you experienced hair loss? These are just a few of the silent symptoms of menopause, and we are fortunate to have Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg with us today to share her wisdom and advice on these and many more silent symptoms of menopause. Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg is the Chief of the Division of Behavioral Medicine at McDonald Women's Hospital, University Hospitals at Cleveland Medical Center, and Professor in Reproductive Biology and Psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University. Her areas of clinical specialization include sexual medicine, female sexual disorders, menopause, pregnancy and postpartum mood disorders, and psychological aspects of infertility. Dr. Kingsburg is a researcher in treatments of female sexual disorders and genitourinary syndrome of menopause, of which we'll talk. It's called GSM, new to me, and she is an associate editor for Sexual Medicine Reviews and sits on the editorial boards of the Journal of Menopause and Climacteric. She is a past president now serving as advocacy chair for both the North American Menopause Society and the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Welcome, Dr. Kingsburg. May I call you Cheryl? Absolutely, Barbara. Please call me Cheryl. It is a pleasure to be here. And to Eric, who said maybe this isn't for him, it absolutely is for any partner or family member or loved one or coworker of a woman who is either peri or postmenopausal. Oh, so if we know women, if we are women, or if we even have friends that are women, this could be actually applicable, do you think? I think so. <laughs> Well, Cheryl, I'm going to ask you, first of all, how did you choose to focus in this area of women's health? 
Well, the story is that I'm a clinical psychologist by training. And when I wanted to specialize, I realized that behavioral medicine was the most fascinating to me. That is looking at the psychological consequences of medical conditions. And then I also realized in my training that sexuality was really uncomfortable, not just for physicians, but believe it or not, for psychologists as well. So I thought that is doing a disservice to sexual people, which is everybody, by not having people who could be trained to treat them. So I realized that was a perfect marriage, if you will, to do behavioral medicine and sexual medicine. And I subspecialized in female sexual function. And then I thought, well, what am I going to do with that training? And I realized that the best place to practice would be in an academic OBGYN department, which was at Case Western Reserve at University Hospitals of Cleveland. And the perfect place was with a chairman who happened to be the founder of the North American Menopause Society, which was Wolf Udian. So he welcomed me in and thus the, uh, the whole career was begun. Well, it was meant to be. Sounds I hope like- so. It sounds like you are in the right place. <laughs> Believe and, it or not, Cleveland, Ohio. Yes. Well, there you go. Well, my brother went to Case Western for dental school. I'll just throw that in. So high regards for Case Western area. Great. So question for you. What is the definition of menopause? The definition of menopause is one moment in time that is 12 months after a woman's last menstrual period. So it is a moment in time. And so that is what menopause is. Therefore, we kind of categorize women as either premenopausal, that is, they're having regular cycles, perimenopausal, which is that transit, that time when your periods start to change, when they become a little bit more irregular, and you may be having symptoms that we will talk about shortly. And then there is that moment that is menopause. And then for the rest of one's life, you are postmenopausal. So pre, peri, and post. I would also like to throw in though, that there are some women who have a surgical menopause or a chemical menopause. I was going right? to ask because if someone's earlier and has a hysterectomy or I don't well, know. It, what... a, right. Well, let me also give you the terminology there. So a hysterectomy is to have your uterus removed. That does right. not make you menopausal or postmenopausal. That just means you no longer can sort of track your cycles because you're no longer bleeding but your ovaries may very well still be intact. So unless you have your ovaries removed, which is an oophorectomy, then you are not menopausal uh, until your ovaries start to shut down. Very good. Thank you for sharing that. So what types, is it, would it only be an oophorectomy that would put a woman into earlier menopause? No, actually. Um, when I talked about chemical menopause, that would be again, chemotherapy or other medicines or other disease processes that would cause the ovaries to shut down sooner than the average age of menopause, which is 51. So there are some women who have what we call POI, premature ovarian insufficiency, and those are women who lose their ovarian function by 35. Early menopause, which is by 40, and then uh, average age of menopause is 51. Thank you. Wow. So 51 is the magic number. 
Yes. Kind of right, uh, right in the middle. Right in the middle. Although I just, before we had this uh, interview, saw somebody who is 56 and still having, uh, starting to have irregular periods, but at 56. Um, well, my great grandmother, I will share, my great grandmother had her 13th child at 54. Scary. Wow. Scary. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Yep. So that was back in the old days, though. So who knows? Well, but Barbara, that brings up a good point of to to tell the listeners that just because you're in your 40s, and in your grandmother's case, your 50s, unless you have had your last menstrual period 12 months ago, or for other reasons, know that you are menopausal, you probably need to keep in mind you need to be on some form of birth control. Yep. Be careful. If you are having sex with uh, men who have sperm. There you go. <laughs> and apparently that says a lot about my great grandfather. Okay, enough of that. So where are we on these silent symptoms of menopause? I mean, we heard, just heard about hot flashes and we know about night sweats. And I have a litany of items that friends have shared with me from insomnia to low libido to incontinence to itchy skin. I know there are so many and maybe you can help us through some of these. Sure. Well, you've got most of them of the primary ones, but you know, let's talk about what hot flashes and night sweats are because they are the same essentially just as when they occur, right. but uh, we call them vasomotor symptoms. And those are the key symptoms of peri and post-menopause. But a hot flash occurs because estrogen is important for thermoregulation of the body's signaling of what's a what's a good temperature. And with the change in hormones and the loss of estrogen, that uh, regulation is a little off, either it becomes narrower so that the body recognizes or thinks it recognizes a need to change that temperature a little sooner than in sort of a good functioning thermoregulation state. So if it thinks that the body is too hot or too cold, it will try to create blood flow to change that. So a hot flash would be to signal the dissipation of heat throughout the body. So it sends blood flow and to all the parts of the body that then lets the heat dissipate. And guess what? What happens? You sweat and then it cools, right? Uh -huh. So the idea is that the body regulates itself by causing it to sweat and then cool. Well, it's interesting. I have a girlfriend that always said, excuse me a moment while I experience my personal summer. And I thought, oh, okay. And that was before I had. So it was an interesting line. Yes. And women, that is the most common symptom of menopause, hot flashes and night sweats. And probably 80% of women will experience them. But those aren't the only ones. So you titled this um, podcast, The Silent Symptoms of Menopause. And there are others that women don't really know about. Sleep disturbance, even without hot flashes. Again, estrogen is related to um, to sleep regulation. And so even if you weren't ever going to have a hot flash, you might have sleep dysregulation. So insomnia could be trouble falling asleep or staying asleep. So it's awakening upon sleep onset, way so. 
is what it's called. So some women will have trouble falling asleep and some women will have trouble staying asleep. There are, as you pointed out, um, urinary symptoms. So some women may have stress incontinence or, or frequency and others may have mood changes. So we know that in perimenopause, the rates of depression are about twice as high as at any other time in a woman's life. Oh my gosh. Twice as high. And that's during perimenopause. That is during perimenopause. I don't want to give the impression, although we're talking about symptoms, that menopause is a disease. It is not. (laughs) It is a natural stage of our reproductive life. Okay. And there are some very good benefits to no longer being fertile. And and in fact, Margaret Mead long ago uh, coined the phrase menopausal zest. I love it. You need not have to think of menopause as the end of everything and that, you know, everything's going to fall apart. There are symptoms that may occur during the transition and that may be problematic, but post-menopause, when the body now sort of hits its new... Settles in. Yeah, its new norm. Many women will still experience hot flashes over many years. They're like, isn't it done yet? But others will be done. And there are many benefits to menopause as well. Well enjoying that zest for life, right? <laughs> Absolutely. You no longer have to take care of those 13 children that your grandmother. Yes. Oh my gosh. Had. Yes. Freedom. Um, let's talk a little bit about something that many times people are a little shy about discussing, and that is vaginal dryness, vaginal pain, low libido. Sure. Is this normal? It is common. It is, I don't want to say normal because normal would say just live with it, honey. And that's unfortunately what too many clinicians kind of give that message, even if they don't say it directly. As we talk about hot flashes and night sweats, as everybody knows that's related to menopause. What many people don't know is that um, what we call genitourinary syndrome of menopause is often as common. That okay, affects- I'm going to shorten that for the, for us lay people out here. That's GSM, right? Yes, call Thank it you. and say it five times. GSM, GSM, GSM. GSM. Thank you. I've never heard that till we had a conversation. Well, it only became a term in 2014, and I was part of the consensus conference that that coined the term. Because prior to that, what we called this constellation of symptoms was vulvovaginal atrophy or VVA, Hmm. vulvovaginal atrophy. And that was a problem as a term for three reasons. One is uh, most women did not like the idea of being told their genitals were atrophying. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Number two, it does not accurately reflect all of the changes in the urogenital system that the change in the loss of estrogen and other hormones that happens at menopause affects, which is why urogenital is in there, right? So we talked about incontinence, right? And Mm -hmm. increased risk of bladder infections because the bacteria and the pH balance of the vagina changes with menopause, and that can affect good bacteria versus not good bacteria that can increase rates of UTIs. And I cannot tell you how many geriatric women, women in their 80s or 90s are heading into the emergency room with UTIs that may actually be ending up being the cause of death for them because nobody had been addressing the fact that uh, they had GSM. So 
don't get me off track on no, that that's topic. Okay. However, so those of us with mothers still living in their 80s yes. and 90s, we need to be aware. Please be aware because nobody thinks, well, why would you think about adding a vaginal estrogen to a 90-year-old, right? But mm. first of all, you're assuming that she is no longer sexually active. So let's not do that. I will tell you, you told your story of your grandmother. My grandmother, who had been married to my grandfather for 65 years, but he passed away when she was 92, she fell in love again. So Aww. please do not think that age has anything to do with falling in love. Right? Never not, diminish that. Never. It is, it is the age of the relationship, not the age of the partner that we think about in terms of risks for sexual boredom. Okay, so genital urinary syndrome of menopause really is a, occurs a little bit later, usually, than that last menstrual period. And so many women are not aware that that's related to menopause, right? So if the average age of menopause is 51, maybe they're not noticing symptoms until their mid-50s, say. And so they don't know they should be asking about, well, is this related to menopause? But it is the loss of those hormones in the vulva, the vagina, urogenital tract. And that creates what had been uh, atrophy. Oh, I forgot the third reason. Sorry, let me go back for one second. The third reason why we changed VVA to GSM, you really couldn't talk about vaginas on television or even on the radio. Thank you for letting me say vagina, 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 because it was causing problems with sort of media awareness of menopause when you can't use correct terms that would cause many oh, people to blush. And so we don't have, we can't see Eric at the moment, but I'm assuming he's no longer blushing because we now can say it so many times. And okay. you and I aren't blushing. No, we are not. Maybe we'll have a hot flash, but we're not. <laughs> so the majority of women, maybe 60 to 80% now, we're going to have symptoms of GSM. And so with 60 that- to, Wait, let me clarify that. Did you say 60 to 80%? Yes. That's a lot of us. Yes. So okay. if we can assume there are about 64 million postmenopause women now, right? We're, we're looking at somewhere about at least 35 million women um, have some of these symptoms. But they don't really recognize that it is related to that loss of hormones at, at menopause, but it is dryness of the vagina, right? The, you lose lubrication, the tissue itself becomes thin, dry. There are three layers of vaginal tissue and the top layer, the super, superficial layer that is where all that lubricant, where the transudate, what we call lubrication happens, sort of wears away. And so no wonder when I show women, and I wish I could, but I think a picture is worth a thousand words. I show them the tissue, a, sort of the cartoon diagram of those layers of tissue and what happens without estrogen or hormones in the vagina. And they're like, oh my God, no wonder it hurts when I try to have penetrative sex. Of course, it's thin, it's dry. The tissue sort of stretches so that it's, um, it's not when a healthy vaginal tissue should be sort of like a pleated skirt where there are folds and, and soft, flexible tissue. And without estrogen in that vagina, it becomes thin, dry, stretched. It can even narrow. So it does narrow. So the idea of use it or lose it, some people will say, well, that's not accurate, but it is accurate because the tissue likes to be pliable and flexible. It doesn't mean that you have to have penetrative sex. You can use a dilator, you can use a finger, but you, but it's helpful to keep the tissue stretched and healthy. So exercise. 
yes, of that exercise. area. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. I have a couple of other questions um, about some of those silent symptoms. Most women also mention about weight gain or slower metabolism. Is that in our heads or is that true? That is relatively, uh, well, I don't want to say controversial. It is just not as well understood. Okay. That at, it's not necessarily related to menopause as much as it is to aging. Okay. Okay. So as we age, our metabolism slows. And what about and osteoporosis? That definitely can be related to the loss of estrogen. So yes, we need estrogen for strong bones. And without estrogen, we become at risk for, for bone uh, fractures. And so we, there are there's osteopenia, which is the weakening of those bones, and then osteoporosis. And we do know, and in the new hormone therapy position statement just out from the North American Menopause Society, that estrogen is, uh, there is evidence that estrogen is important for osteoporosis prevention. Can you expound a little bit about the new or latest information on hormone replacement therapy? because there was this period where there was the scare and then there has been new data. And I think many of us are confused to replace or not replace. Yes. And if so, I'm, when? <laughs> sure. Well, first of all, anybody can read the position statement on hormone therapy, if you would like. And there's actually a patient handout as well. If you go to menopause.org, so menopause.org is the website for the North American Menopause Society. And the position statement is has public access, as does a patient handout. So more of a- I, I will put of, that in our podcast notes for sure. Great. But you are correct in the, the fact that many people are confused about hormones and whether they're risky or not risky. And much of this came out of the Women's Health Initiative, which was a, a, a large clinical trial run by the NIH many years ago. But most people don't realize that the idea of the Women's Health Initiative, which had in its subject population women who are for the most part older, they were not at your average age of menopause, they were already much older. Um, they This was supposed to look to see whether hormone therapy could be cardioprotective. I see. cardioprotective. They were not looking at breast cancer as the primary outcome. They were not looking at necessarily hot flashes and night sweats. They were looking at, nope, they were, the primary goal was to see whether it was cardioprotective. So the population was older. And what happened was the initial results scared the heck out of lots of people and created this almost panic that almost immediately lots and lots of Physicians and patients stopped their hormones right away. The reason was because the initial results, which then shut down the um, estrogen plus progestin arm of the trial. Let me take a step back. Women in this trial were given, if they have a uterus, the way hormone therapy is given is you give estrogen with a progestin, okay? And the progestin protects the uterus because unopposed estrogen can put women at risk for uterine cancer. The uterus needs to bleed. There needs to be, and the progestin helps that, okay? So it is a combination of estrogen and progestin if you have a uterus. And so women who had a uterus in the trial were given that combination. And women without a uterus who'd had a hysterectomy were given unopposed estrogen because they didn't need 
uh, progestin because they didn't have a uterus. It was all the same kind of estrogen. It was, so there was one kind of estrogen given. It was conjugated equine estrogen. Now I'm going to jump in here. Equine sounds like horse to me. Yes. Horse taken from horse urine, which is what Premarin, the brand Premarin is. Okay. Okay. Um, And a particular progestin, um, which is, uh, which was Provera. And that was the, the kind of estrogen and progestin that was used. So early on, it looked like that uh, group that had the combination had an increased risk of breast cancer. Now, looking at the data over many years, we now can see that the increased risk of breast cancer was very low. And we now, and so based on much more data, looking at that data again and other data, the hormone position statement now says that using the combination of an estrogen and not just the CEE, but there are many forms of estrogen and different forms of progestins increases the risk of breast cancer by a very small amount. So that would be about one in a thousand per year. Okay. One in a thousand women per year will have a, a breast cancer based on the increased risk of taking that combination. Or based on the Women's Health Initiative, it was about eight in 10,000. Okay. So okay. N- not a huge increase. And the estrogen alone actually reduced the risk of breast cancer. Oh, uh, interesting. Yes. So there was a reduction in risk of breast cancer. But of course, that was not the top of the news. And if you That's look at- That's why it was news, right? Yes, say the bad stuff. absolutely. Okay. And, you know, no good news is no news. And if you look at what we call all cause mortality mm-hmm. of these women over time, the women on hormone therapy have a lower rate of all cause mortality. Why is that? Because hormone therapy does other things. As we talked about, it prevents um, osteoporosis. Okay, it is, it, you're right. And there may be some uh, benefit for colon cancer. And there are other benefits of not just looking at the breast cancer risk. So all cause mortality goes down. There's a slight increased risk for breast cancer if you're using the combination. And there's a slight in- decrease in risk of breast cancer if you're on unopposed estrogen. So in other words, our audience interested in this should maybe have a deeper conversation with their doctors? So the recommendations are that hormone therapy is still first-line treatment for women who are having bothersome vasomotor symptoms, okay? Okay. If you have bothersome symptoms, then that would certainly be first-line treatment. And you're saying vasomotor? Uh, hot flashes and night Thank sweats. You. I was going hot to say the lay person. Yep. Hot flashes and night sweats. That is still the, the first line treatment. And that is if you are within 10 years of reaching your last menstrual period. So within 10 years of menopause or under 60, if you are with beyond 10 years or over 60, have that conversation with your provider. Thank you. Now, what about, you sometimes hear and read about herbal medicines? Are those useful? Should people stay away from them? What's the latest the, on that? So just because something is over the counter does not necessarily make it safe nor effective. Thank you. Right? And so right. what you want is evidence-based medicine. 
there are very few over-the-counter options that have good data. SQL, um, EQOL, is one that has some data, and that is over-the-counter, but there are very few others that really have any evidence behind them to support their use for hot flashes or night sweats. Well, thank you. That's a question that, you know, comes up sometimes. People just say, oh, well, I think I can get, what was it, black cohash or something over the Correct. counter? Right. Okay. No, the data does not support that it's effective. Thank you. Now, can we go back? Because uh, we started to talk about GSM. Yes. And, and how common it is and that it causes a vaginal dryness and pain with sexual activity. Right, and you're going to tell us how to fix it. Right? I am going to tell you how to fix it. So even if, well, again, first line treatment is systemic hormones if you have hot flashes and night sweats. But if you don't have those, but you do have GSM, right, dryness, right. pain with sexual activity, local hormone therapy, and by local, I mean vaginal, is definitely an option. And for those women who are absolutely, no matter how much I can say, the the hormone position statement would suggest that first-line treatment for hot flashes and night sweats are still hormone therapy. If there are still going to be women who will never, ever consider systemic hormones, but they really should consider local vaginal uh, hormone therapy because- How, how much <clears throat> um, hormone is delivered in the vaginal creams or gels or whatever. So there are local estrogens, which are in a pill form, a little teeny white pill that you can insert in cream form, in a vaginal, a soft gel vaginal insert in a ring. And there is one, what's called a CIRM, selective estrogen reuptake modulator that is an oral medicine. And there's dehydroepiandrosundione. I know that's a mouthful. That is D-H-E-A. I'm glad you said that. Which estrogen-androgen combo that is also a vaginal insert, all of which can be used for GSM. And the amount of estrogen in those local vaginal products, the amount that you would get in one year's use of that vaginal estrogen is about the equivalent of one to two birth control pills. Oh, would you repeat that, please? Yes. The year's worth of vaginal estrogen is the equivalent of one to two pills. Okay? Oh my gosh, who knew? So Thank you, you have for very, that. Yeah, very little, very, very little systemic absorption. If any, if you look at the many of the studies, they show a steady state of no systemic absorption. Okay. So even women who are breast cancer survivors may have that conversation with their oncologist, and that is recommended to have that conversation with their, your oncologist. But even women who have breast cancer history are not necessarily automatically excluded from using local vaginal products. Now, wow. if you're on an aromatase inhibitor, right, that may be a different combination and a conversation with your oncologist and there are things that you can try, but we use lubricants, which is uh, a lubricant to be used with sexual activity. We have moisturizers, which are sort of like how we moisturize our face that can help keep the tissue moisturized. But but to treat the underlying tissue change that happens, you need the hormone. Thank you. So we need to bring up GSM and not be a part of that conspiracy of the silent. Is that right? 
Yes, I have been trying for many years to make sure that it is clinicians that bring up the topic. And most clinicians will say, well, if my if my my patients trust me, we can talk about anything. If they were having symptoms, they would tell me. And women will say to me, well, if if it was something that they thought they could address or was appropriate to bring up, my clinician would ask me about it. So that's the conspiracy of silence. The clinician isn't asking and the, the patient's not the asking. The patient is not asking. But, but now everyone listening, GSM, 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 we are going to ask. Yep. It's very easy. Now, I will tell you, if you get a, a local vaginal hormone therapy, you will see, if it's an estrogen, you will see the exact same warning label and package insert for your systemic hormone therapy for your systemic estrogens because the FDA says an estrogen is an estrogen is an estrogen, but really the risks of breast cancer, stroke, dementia, all those scary things that you see in the systemic hormone indication is not going to be what's happening when you're taking that teeny dose of a local estrogen. So I just have one more question about hormones. Um, we talked about low libido and we talked about how to keep things moisturized now. What hormone plays a role in sexual desire? Is that estrogen, progestin, no. or testosterone? So we didn't talk about low libido yet because that is desire. Okay. So when so the local estrogen will be important for keeping the vaginal vulvo vaginal tissue healthy, but for desi desires in your brain. And the hormone related to desire is really more testosterone. And many people don't realize that women have testosterone. We do have testosterone, just like men have estrogen. We have about one-tenth the amount of testosterone that men do. And so with menopause, our testosterone levels also decline. Our ovaries are producing about 50% of circulating testosterone. The adrenals and other organs produce the rest, but 50% are produced in the ovaries. And some women with that decline in ovarian function will notice a change in their appetite for sex. So okay. when we think about desire, think about it from a biopsychosocial perspective. That is, there are many factors that create the wanting to be sexual. Drive is the biologic component of wanting. That is based on physical health, right? And it is also related to neurotransmitters like dopamine, which is right. important for drive. And it's also related to hormones and testosterone is important for drive. Well, we are so, a very complicated being, aren't we? Gosh. Well, uh, no more complicated than than males. We just are now talking about it. But but drive does can go down with a decline in testosterone in some women. Some women won't notice it, and others will. But there are also psychological factors. So remember that perimenopausal depression, sociocultural factors. If for whatever reason you are now led to believe that I'm six years old and I'm not supposed to be sexual anymore, that can play a role in feeling badly about it. And interpersonal factors, right? You could have all the drive in the world, but if you don't particularly like your spouse, right. you're you not going to have the right want, person. You're not going to want to sleep with them. 
but that doesn't, and there are plenty of women who don't have partners who still have drive. And we certainly encourage self-stimulation as well. Again, it's that use it or lose it, but having a partner that you want to be sexual with absolutely plays into desire. But when we're talking about testosterone, we're looking at the appetite, which is your body signal that it would like to have a sexual encounter, whether or not you act on it. So it's kind of wanting, right? It's, it's wow, wanting. Cheryl, this has been just amazing. You have shared so much. Just some of the key points that I'm just thinking off the top of my head would be hormone replacement therapy can be helpful for the right candidates. GSM or genitourinary syndrome of menopause is treatable and we should bring this up with our medical professionals. Don't wait for them. Testosterone plays an important part of sexual desire and none of us women need to suffer pain or vaginal dryness when the treatment of estrogen is about equivalent to two birth control pills in a year. That's the first I've ever heard that. So that's just amazing. Well, so many women have been on birth control or know that their bodies have had estrogen for most of their lives. And then all of a sudden, they're now afraid of hormones because, again, a lot of that publicity. And I want to make one last point about the sure. testosterone. Testosterone, there is no FDA approved formulation for testosterone for women. So what? if there is, that is true. No that is true. The only the only country that has an approved product is Australia. For every other country, um, it is off what we call off label. That is, it is commonly used, but it is not approved. And therefore, your clinician has got to prescribe it off label, which means it won't get covered by insurance. Okay, just won't. And the dose has to be titrated. So we recommend and now, ISWISH, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health, has put out a clinical guideline on how to treat with testosterone. And there has been a global consensus that included the North American Menopause Society and the International Menopause Society and 10 other international societies showing that testosterone is effective for treating low desire in postmenopausal women. But again, no approved product. So your clinician needs to know how to dose it properly, which is again, using typically a male product, which is often a testosterone gel, not it's a topical, no injections, no pellets, right? You want a topical testosterone gel that you can dose to about one tenth of a daily male dose would be the equivalent wow. of a female dose, which if you ever cook, it would be about the the difference, the in-between a dash and a smidge <laughs> would be the amount of gel that you would put on the back of your calf. Fair enough. Fair enough. But I'm going to plead with you to stay involved in all of these fabulous societies and visit visit with us again sometime to share some of this information, especially as things get updated, because this is so helpful. And Cheryl, I am going to ask in closing, though, how do you keep your well in wealthy? How do I keep my well in wealthy? I, I exercise. And I have to say, that exercise to me is how I describe desire to many women who struggle with spontaneous desire. That is, I don't particularly look forward to it. I don't wake up and think, oh my, I can't wait to go work out. <laughs> However, I do know that once I'm there, once I've 
worked up a little sweat, my heart rate's up, then I'm like, oh, this feels great. I'm so glad I got there. And so many women who are in long-term relationships, I tell them it is the same thing. They may not really have that passion and drive that they used to when they were first dating, but usually if there's no pain and they actually like their partner, once they get started, they can have some responsive desire. It is women who who lose that spontaneous drive that want it back that we then treat, and I do treat that. Uh, but I just love the idea that sometimes getting there is the hard part, but once you're there- Just you getting started. Time. Yep. Well, thank you for sharing. Cheryl, this has been so helpful and your knowledge, you've just enlightened so many of us here. and. We now know that those silent symptoms of menopause, many can be treated and should be, and we need to have that open conversation with our professionals with whom we work. So thank you again, and I look forward to speaking with you in the future. Thank you for inviting me and allowing me to talk about menopause. Thank you. Oh, Dr. Kingsburg. Okay. You don't know me very well. <laughs> and I, I have to, you threw down the gauntlet. I don't blush easily, but I actually have a couple questions for you if you don't mind. Sure. From the male perspective. And the reason I bring this up, I just want to be very transparent. I myself went through a, a bout of pretty heavy depression for about a year and a half confusion on not understanding why I had zero drive when it came to work and just not feeling right. And lo and behold, it was low testosterone. And I don't mind sharing that because like you said, this is the silent, the theme of this was the silent suffering kind of thing where women are going through something and they don't always know what it is, or they don't always want to discuss it. But I want to ask you two questions based on my experience and not knowing what I was going through. How can we as men support the women in our lives? And also if we see symptoms, how can we lovingly start a conversation? I mean, besides sharing this podcast, which I obviously promote, but do you have some advice for us guys out there? Well, one of the things I have done is I've done some research surveying men who have partners who have GSM and looking at the impact on the relationship and what their feelings are. And, and I also did a survey of men who had partners who were just having all kinds of menopause symptoms mm -hmm. and how they approached it. And the answer is open the door, have that conversation. It is communication and you, you're not going to insult her or embarrass her, uh, hopefully, by saying we are at that age and mm -hmm. it is, it's often not discussed, but, and particularly for you, but for your friends to say, you know, menopause symptoms are common and I am your partner and I want to, I want you to know that. Oh, but don't you think also women to be very flattered that their they would care. partner cares and yes. wants to address it or wants to have that conversation. To me, that just sounds so loving. To be knowledgeable that you've even thought about it is, right. I mean, you're already ahead of the game. Yeah. I, I, I would know what it is. So. Yeah, yeah. I would hope that men wouldn't shy away from this conversation because of not understanding how their partner may take it. My wife and I talk about everything. So this is nothing new for us. Um, but I know that just looking at our circle of friends, there's a couple of the ladies that would be very embarrassed if their husband asked them questions about that. And I hope that that can, by your discussion today, you can break down those barriers because it's so important. And so thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, I can't thank you enough. And I am sharing this with my wife. And of course, Barbara, you're amazing. Thank you so <laughs> well, much for bringing on such a knowledgeable guest. Eric, we appreciate you asking the question. You're helping Absolutely. open that door to loving partners. 
Well, I'm just a very small piece of that. <laughs> just that <laughs> it, it, they have to be willing to have that discussion and you've teed them up beautifully for that, both of you. So thank you so much. And of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to Keeping the Well and Wealthy with Barbara Archer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Barbara comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask you to share this podcast, rate it and leave a review as this helps other people find the show. And wow, what an important one for people to find and listen to and share. Again, thank you for listening today. For everyone at Hightower, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to go out in the world and make a difference. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Keeping the Well in Wealthy with Barbara Archer, sponsored by Hightower. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Hightower Wealth Advisors. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Hightower Wealth Advisors is a group comprised of investment professionals registered with Hightower Advisors LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Some investment professionals may also be registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is neither indicative nor a guarantee of future results. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data or other information referenced herein is from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other data or information contained in this presentation is provided as general market commentary and does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates make no representations or warranties expressed or implied as to the accuracy or completeness of the information or for statements or errors or omissions or results obtained from the use of this information. Hightower Wealth Advisors and Hightower Advisors LLC assume no liability for any action made or taken in reliance on or relating in any way to this information. The information is provided as of the date referenced in the document. Such data and other information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed herein are solely those of the authors and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. This material is not intended or written to provide and should not be relied upon or used as a substitute for tax or legal advice. Information contained herein does not consider an individual's or entity's specific circumstances or applicable governing law, which may vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction and be subject to change. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.